Well, this morning we're back in Romans chapter 11, and uh, I'm going to continue on in our study here. And so I want to read for us verses 17, Romans chapter 17, actually uh, verses 16 through 24 this morning. Romans chapter 11, verses 16 through 24. Paul writes in verse 16, Romans 11, If the dough offered as firstfruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches." If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? A lot there, we'll see how far we get. But we've been looking at Romans chapter 11 these past couple uh, weeks, and I think in preparation of our communion time today, this is a a wonderful text for us to be in. And uh, we think... Often, we sing often of that hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Love that hymn, and that's found in Lamentations chapter 3. Jeremiah writes in verse 22, he said, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Verse 24, he continues, he says, The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Also over in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, he writes this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some Count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. What both of those verses are saying to our hearts is that God is faithful. Great is his faithfulness. And he's faithful to his word. There are many other verses throughout the Bible that claim just that, that God is always and will always be faithful to his word. We can count on that as believers, as his followers. As believers, we believe with all of our hearts that our eternal destiny rests in that simple faith, in that simple truth, that God is faithful, what? To his word. 
If we don't have that, we don't have anything. And as followers of Christ, everything we believe, everything we hold dearly in our Christian lives is based upon that promise. John MacArthur said this, he said, There is no better proof of the faithfulness of God than the redemptive history of Israel. There's no better proof than the faithfulness of God than the redemptive history of Israel. If you want to understand the faithfulness of God, if you want to understand how great his faithfulness is, all you have to do is look at the nation and the people of Israel. I mean, when you stop and think of Israel, when you look at them in the Old Testament, I mean, it seems like they were never doing what they were supposed to be doing. They were living in a constant state of disobedience. It seems like they did everything to try to cancel out the promises that God promised them. Everything to violate the love of God that he had for them, for his people. And yet, because God is a God of faithfulness, because God is a God of truth, because God is a God who stands on his promises... We know the story, and the story basically says that his love for them, in spite of all of their actions that were not honoring to him, in spite of all their actions that violated his plan and his purposes for them, God's promises stood true, and his love stood strong for his people. In spite of their sin, in spite of their rejection, In spite of even their unbelief at times, the scripture holds that there is still a place for national Israel in the plan and purpose of God. And that's what we're looking at. We're looking at God's purpose for the Jew and the Gentile. We reject, as a Bible-believing church, what so many churches are embracing today, which is basically a belief... That somehow God has replaced Israel with the church. That because Israel rejected his plan and his purpose, that somehow God said, okay, well, I'm just going to take all those promises for national Israel and I'm just going to now apply them to the church. And it doesn't really matter about national Israel and me. They're, they're just on the shelf that it doesn't matter anything about them. Everything's been canceled out. Well, that's not true. The Bible holds very clearly that those promises that God made are not based upon the performance or the obedience of the people that he promised the promise to. I don't know about you, but I'm thankful for that truth. I'm thankful that God didn't say, yeah, I'm going to cancel out all your sin and I'm going to save you through the sacrifice of my son. But you know what? If you mess up, forget it. <laughs> I mean, how many of us today could stand here and say, well, yeah, I, I would still be saved if that was the, the circumstances. No, we would all be lost. And see, the same for Israel. God's promises to Israel were not based upon their performance. We just got done with a series on the solas. And the one thing we came to understand at the end of all those basically everything wraps up with the glory of God 
And the reason that our salvation is for his glory is because we don't have anything to do with it. He is the one that saves us. We don't save ourselves. It's him that chose us before the foundation of the world. Why? I have the slightest idea. Sometimes I wonder about that. God, why did you save me? But he did. I don't know. He hasn't answered that question. So all the promises that were meant meant for Israel, his chosen people, are just that. They're meant for Israel, his chosen people. And so when we looked at Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, that's what Paul is trying to communicate to us. That God is faithful to his promises, to his people. If God promises us salvation, you know what? He's going to bring it to pass. If God promises to redeem us, if he promises us redemption, he will give us redemption. And we've seen in chapters 9 and 10 where Paul taught us that, yes, Israel, that God has set Israel on the sideline for a while because of their disobedience, because of their unbelief. Chapter 9, we looked at and we said, you know what? We saw that how this is part of God's sovereign plan. This wasn't a mistake. And that somehow God even can use our own sin for his glory ultimately. And in chapter 10, it said they were sidelined because of their unbelief. I mean, all you have to do, beloved, is pick up a newspaper, look at the news. When it talks about Israel, you can see very plainly, very clearly that when it comes to the nation of Israel today in our modern society, they are not in a place of blessing in regards to God. Everyone wants to wipe them off the face of the earth. They're not witnessing for God in the world. They're not the recipients of his truth today. And there's no way that they're out there proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, his message to a lost and dying world. And because of that, they're set on the shelf. They're set on the sideline. And so here in chapter 11 of Romans, Paul wants us to understand that, yeah, he, he set Israel aside. But even though that's part of his purpose, that's part of his plan for this time. Even that has a purpose and a plan. And he wants us to know, Paul wants us to know, that this isn't a permanent thing with Israel. This isn't something that God just said, oh, now you're disqualified and I'm never going to fulfill any of my promises to you. And so these verses here in chapter 11 explain what God is doing in the area of salvation not only in this present time, but in relationship to his people, both Jew and Gentile. And the first week we looked at this, we realized that it involves the grace of God. It involves God's saving grace. Verse 1, he asked that question, has God rejected his people? By no means. And he goes on and he says, for I myself and him is Israel, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, and what he's saying is, if God can save me, he can save anybody. And so Paul 
pointed that out. He pointed out with Elijah that there's always a remnant. Even when it looks bad, there's always a remnant of believers. And so it involves God's saving grace. We also saw in verses 2 to 10, it, it involves God's selecting grace. Talked about Paul. Talked about Elijah. And now he's talking about those who are saved, not because of their birth, not because of their nationality, but because we're saved because of God's pure grace. We're redeemed because we have been chosen by God in Christ Jesus. And that's what Paul wanted us to see in these first several verses. Well, then in verse 11, last week, we began to look at, it not only involves the grace of God, but it involves the grafting of God, the grafting of God. And last week, we looked a little bit at the reason here in verses 11 to 15. Think about it. God chose his people to be the recipients of his word, his truth, to be the people out of which the Messiah came. So that they would be the message of the gospel of Christ to the whole world. Well, guess what? They didn't play the game. They didn't want to play along in God's plan. So what did they do? They killed the prophets. They killed Christ himself. They held on to the religious traditions. And so God had to set them on the shelf. And so in verse 11, we saw where it says, did they stumble in order that they might fall? And he says, by no means. In other words, there's a stumbling that can end in a pure inability to get back up ever. That's not the stumbling he's talking about here. He's saying, yeah, they stumbled a little bit. They're in a state of unbelief right now. They're on the sideline. But you know what? They're not out of the game. Paul says, by no means. And the reason that this happened, he gives it in verse 11, rather through their trespass, really that speaking of belief in the Messiah, speaking of in regards to their salvation. God offered them salvation, but they rejected the Messiah. Because of that, rather through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. And we saw that last week how God even though he turned to Israel and he desired to bless them with his truth and bless them with the Messiah well they misread it and they got proud and they held on to God's truth and they said we're not going to give it to anybody we're God's chosen people we're going to hoard it to ourselves and they didn't even follow it anyway they were disobedient to it And so God, for a time, has chosen, according to his purpose and his plan, to set Israel on the sideline. But guess what? Even that has a reason. It's so that he can reach the Gentiles. He said, okay, Israel, you don't want to play ball? I'm going to go to those who are outside of my chosen people. I'm going to go to the the Gentiles, the rest of the world. And he opened the door of salvation wide for them. In John chapter 1, verses 11 to 13, John tells us he came to his own. The Messiah came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. 
But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born, listen to this, not of blood. In other words, you don't have a relationship with God just because you were born into the right family or the right people. Doesn't work that way. So it doesn't matter what your heritage is. Secondly, he says, nor of the will of the flesh. All the things that you might be willing to do to try to earn that. That doesn't work. And he says, nor of the will of man. In other words, it didn't even really have anything to do with you, people. Nothing. Well, whose will was it then? It was God. He says, but of God in verse 13. See, the Lord set Israel aside momentarily so that he could reach out to the rest of us who are not Jewish, the Gentiles. And it has a purpose. He says there in verse 11, what's the purpose? So to make Israel jealous. In other words, God said, you know what? They don't understand the blessing of God. They have no clue. I'm trying to bless them and they're just being disobedient. I can't bless them. So as a result, I'm going to turn to these other people and I'm going to bless them when they obey my word. And as I'm blessing these people who are outside of Israel because of their obedience to my word, I want Israel to look at that and go, whoa, look at how God's blessing those people. Why is he blessing them? We're his chosen people. Paul says that God has used the salvation of the Gentiles to provoke the Jews to jealousy. And that's a good kind of a jealousy, not a bad kind of a jealousy. Paul hopes somehow that they will see what God is doing for the Gentiles and that they will themselves want some of that. I mean, isn't that what we're called to do as believers? I mean, isn't that why God left us here? Hopefully we live our lives in a Christ-like manner so that others will look at that and go, whoa, how do you, you know, you're, you're going through all these problems and yet you still kind of have this underlying confidence. You have this underlying faith that somehow God is going to work. Where does that come from? I mean, that's what Christ taught us in Matthew chapter 5. As believers, verses 13 to 16 He said very clearly, you are the what? Salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So he gives the illustration of salt. Salt has a purpose. God left us here on this lost and dying sinful world with a purpose, beloved. It's to have an impact. It's to give a fresh flavor to once to what otherwise what would be rancid. If we're not doing that as believers, guess what? We deserve to be trampled out. We trampled under people's feet. We we deserve to be thrown out. In other words, where is our effectiveness as a Christian people here in this world? 
I mean, God did not just leave us here, beloved, to gather every Sunday, Sunday after Sunday, and, and feast upon his word and grow fat and grow lazy in our Christian ministries. That's not what God wants. I mean, this is a blessed time, don't get me wrong. And it's a time of instruction. It's a time where God, we're fulfilling God's command to gather together. But don't ever forget that Jesus also taught that you're the salt of the earth. Sometimes we forget that. Verse 14, he gives another illustration. He says, you're not only the salt of the earth. He says, you're the light of the world. And he breaks it down. He says, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. I mean, there's a reason why when you're flying up at 30,000 feet, you can see those beacons going off on these hillsides as you're flying across the country. I remember growing up in Pennsylvania, we had several acres of property. And on top of one of the mountains we had, there was a beacon for the local airport. We used to go up there as teenagers and look at it. Go, oh, yeah, we need to climb up there, you know. <laughs> we never did it. Probably get arrested. But it was wet. it's out in the middle of the woods. But you know what? Even though we couldn't even see it from our house, you could see it from up there. Why? You can't hide it. Verse 15, Matthew 5, he says, Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. I mean, other than causing a fire, you'd probably have a problem. (laughs) It wouldn't make any sense to do that. If you're lighting a lamp for light, why would you want to cover it up and make it dark? Where do you put it? He says you put it on a stand. And he gives light to all in the house. And then he says... Okay, I've given you these two illustrations. In verse 16, he says, In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to you. doesn't say that, does it? It says, Glory to your Father who is in heaven. Well, see, that was God's plan for Israel as well. They blew it. And for a period of time, he's saying, you know what? Time out. (laughs) You're going to sit over here. I'm going to bless these other people. And hopefully when you see them being blessed, you're going to get jealous. And Paul knows that since salvation is being preached to the Gentiles, many Gentiles are coming to know God. They're coming to know Christ through the grace of God. And what he's thinking is that if The Jew being rejected can bring men to Christ. What would happen if the Jew was saved? That's what he's saying in these verses. Verse 12. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, in other words, they're they're blowing it and, and, and the world is being blessed. And if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, we're getting saved. Think about what happens when when they get saved. Think about what happens when they open up their lives and live according to the purpose and plan of God. So he says, how much more will their full inclusion mean? He says, I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Because I'm apostle to the Gentiles. 
Remember, this is a Jew speaking, right? And he says, I'm not ashamed of that. I'm going to magnify my ministry. Why? So that more Gentiles can get saved? Well, not necessarily. That may happen, but he says, the reason I want to do that, verse 14, in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. He's saying, I'm willing to be obedient to God's call to preach to you Gentiles. And hey, I'm, I'm glad that you're getting saved, but you know what? That's not my main focus. My main focus is that while you're getting saved, glory be to God, that some of my Jewish brothers We'll look at that and go, hey, you know what? Why aren't we getting that? Why aren't we receiving that blessing? And some of them will get saved. In verse 15, he says, for if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, in other words, Israel's rejection for a time means that, hey, the rest of the world can hear the gospel. The rest of the world can be reconciled to Christ. What will their acceptance mean? But life from the dead. What he's saying there, you know what? It's going to take a miracle. Have you ever tried to witness to someone who's Jewish? It's not easy. They love to banter. They love to argue back and forth. And they're usually pretty brilliant people. So usually you're starting off on the wrong side of the shorter end of the stick there. At least I am. And no matter how much you share with them, you know, Christ fulfilled. They're just blinded. And what a glorious thing it is when one of them does see the risen Christ for who he is. And they do look upon him whom they've pierced. And they come to faith in Christ. But that's not the rule. That's the exception nowadays. But there's always a remnant. There's always some that are going to believe. Can you imagine what's going to happen when God opens their eyes in the future? It's going to take a miracle. That's why he says it's going to be like life from the dead. That would be a miracle, wouldn't it? If someone was dead and they came back to life, that would be an incredible miracle. Well, beloved, that's a picture of our salvation. We're dead in our trespasses and sin. We can't do anything. Have you ever given a command to a dead person? Nothing happens. Body just lays there. God is going to quicken their hearts, their minds, take the blinders off their eyes, and for the first time they're going to look upon whom they have pierced and whom they killed, Christ himself. And they're going to realize, wow, we need forgiveness. And then in verse 16, pick up where we're starting today. This is kind of the the results What happens? He says in verse 16, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy. Now, this is going back into the the Old Testament. They have offerings. And it says here, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. So he begins to give us an illustration here. He gives a result, the result of a natural branch, Israel, being broken off, and the result of this wild branch, the the Gentile nations, being grafted in. 
See, we're now allowed as Gentiles the privilege of being placed in a personal relationship with the God of heaven. See, in the Jewish mindset, that would just never happen. That would never happen. Remember, in the the tabernacle, the temple period, only the Jew had access to the things of God. Only they could go into the temple and do sacrifices. Only they could approach the high priest and have their sins atoned for. Only they could really enter into the things of the Lord. What about the Gentiles? Well, they were outside, man. They, They had no hope. They were left outside of all those things. They had no access to God whatsoever. But now, in Christ Jesus, who is the door of John 10, the Gentiles are no longer cast out, the Bible says. But through Christ, through his sacrifice, we are now allowed to enter into the the holiest of holies. The holiest place of all. Where is that? His perfect presence. See, do you understand that? As Gentiles now, we are not stopped at the the steps of the temple. Hey, you can't go in there. (laughs) That's not happening anymore. We're not forbidden from entering into the holy place. Now we are allowed to go all the way with Christ into the deep things of God. Why is that? Because we're somebody? No. It's because of God and his grace. He has, in his purpose, in his plan, he's turned even the fall of Israel into the blessing of the Gentile nations. I mean, only God could do something like this. And you see it throughout Scripture. You probably see it in your own life. Maybe you are faced with a trial. Something that you're just not not looking forward to going through. Maybe in the past in your life you were faced with a trial and you weren't looking to go through that. But you know what? God took you right through it. And now you look back and you say, now I understand why. It wasn't comfortable. It wasn't fun to go through it. But you know what? God had a purpose. God had a plan. I'm sure Saul on the road to Damascus thought, what in the world? You know, here I lost my vision. What's going on? But you know what? God had a purpose. God had a plan. And so in verse 16 here, Paul, with his logic, he begins to argue. And he says, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. If the first fruit is holy, the whole lump is holy. In other words, if you have a lump of dough and you take a little bit off out of that, it comes out of Numbers chapter 15. Of the first fruits of your dough, the dough they would make bread, of the first fruits of your dough, you shall give to the Lord as an offering in your generation. In other words, what was going on here as they were baking their bread, as they were providing for their sustenance, the object was, the picture here was each time the dough was prepared for baking the bread among the Jewish people, a little piece of that dough was broken off of that bigger lump of dough. And that little piece was given as a first fruit offering to the Lord. Basically saying, hey, you know what? 
it was taken to the temple and it was given to the priest. And he was to use it for his sustenance. And it was kind of, you know, a similar thing today. We give, what, a portion of our, of our income to the Lord out of thanksgiving. It was an offering to the Lord. It was the first fruits. Pulled off a little hunk of that dough and you gave it to the Lord. You gave it to the priest at the temple. What was God teaching them through that? He was saying, hey, you may think this whole thing is your dough because you made it. But you know what? That dough came from me. And if you're going to be thankful, I want you to take a little piece of that dough that you've worked hard over and set it aside for me. Because in the end, everything belongs to him, beloved, right? Everything comes from him. Everything really was to be consecrated to him. Everything was to be set apart onto him. And that was a symbol of that. You know, I'm going to offer this little piece of dough to you, Lord. And I want it all to be consecrated to him. And this symbolizes that little, that desire that I have for you to do that. It's just a way of saying thank you. This is your provision. I mean, that's what we're called to do with not just our income and our things that we possess, but even our own lives. We're to look heavenward and go, God, you gave me another day to live. Let me live it for your glory. Let me do what you want to do through me, not what I want to do. Lord, I want you to empower me to do your will, to fulfill your promise, to do the things that would honor your name. And each little piece of dough that you break off of your life is a picture, it's a symbol of that dedication of your whole life to him. And so he says, if the first fruit is set apart or holy, that's what that means. It means a set apart, consecrated, devoted to God, separated. Then the whole lump is set apart. If the first fruit is set apart, that little piece you broke off, then everything in that whole lump is set apart. He wants us to see that. And then he gives a second illustration. He says, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. It's the same idea. If the roots are holy, well, then this branch way out here on the end, well, that's part of the root. So it's all together holy. It's all set aside. So if you're willing to understand that it's a little piece of the dough, the whole thing is consecrated, the whole thing is holy, because the root is holy, the branches, therefore, are set apart. Everything belongs to God is basically what he wants us to see. And this was very practical in their thinking as far as Jews when they gave their first fruits of grain to the Lord, they were saying, in effect, you know what? This resembles a token of the fact that, that I dedicate all this grain to you. 
I mean, God could have very easily said, you know what? I want all of it. When you go work and your paycheck, I want the whole thing. And you trust me to take care of you. Aren't you glad he didn't say that? (laughs) So when they gave the offering of money even to the Lord, it was like saying, hey, this is just a symbol of everything that I own. I want everything to be dedicated to you. And what he wants us to see here, beloved, is that, you know what? If one portion of Jewish people are consecrated to the Lord, guess what? They're all consecrated to the Lord. That's the purpose of these illustrations. I mean, when you stop and think about it, who were the first fruits? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, right? The patriarchs, the fathers. Obviously, he has in mind here probably Abraham. And if God set apart those individuals, he was setting apart the whole lump. And if God set apart the root, who was Abraham, he's setting apart the branches. I mean, bottom line, Paul is saying here, you Jews know very well that a part of a thing consecrated intends to say that the whole thing is consecrated. And if God sets apart the root and God sets apart the first fruit in the case of Abraham and the fathers, then he consecrated the whole thing to himself. He wants us to understand that. And then in verse 17, he goes on. And he begins to talk a little bit about what this means. But if some of the branches were broken off, because of their unbelief, they were broken off. And you, although a wild olive shoot, Gentiles, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree... Do not be arrogant toward those branches. What's he saying here? See, he wants us to understand that these redeemed Gentiles as a result of Israel's fall, that they shouldn't boast in our salvation. We shouldn't look down on the Jewish people because of their unbelief. In a weird way, we should thank them. (laughs) Because God used their unbelief For the purpose of our salvation. And sometimes as Christians we think that wow. Aren't we something? Look at us. We're the people of God. We believe God. We do this. We do that. And we have to stop and have the Lord remind us. You wouldn't have done anything. If it wasn't for my grace. If it wasn't for me reaching down and saving you and transforming your heart and your mind to see the truth of the gospel in Christ. You would still be lost in your sin. See, the same God who grafted them in is the same God who can break them off if they become lifted up in their pride. That's his point. Not really in in accordance to their salvation, but more in their effectiveness and their usefulness to the Lord. It's the same thing. Israel got prideful, 
unbelief. They were disobedient. God, why? He set them on the sideline. He didn't reject them forever. They're still his people. They're just on an extended time out because of their behavior. So the image of grafting in the branches really has the idea back in that day they would graft branches from these young olive trees into the older ones because the older ones would stop being productive. And olive trees, if you know anything about them, they grow very, very old. They just continue to, to last, but they become less productive. And so it's a picture of Israel becoming um, unfruitful. And because they're unfruitful, what does God do? He grafts in some new branches. He says, you know what? We're going to give this root, this tree, some new life. And so he grafts in the Gentiles. But he even says there, but if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree... He says, don't get high and mighty about yourself. Don't start thinking yourself more than what you want. Because in verse 18, he says, do not be arrogant toward the branches. The ones that were broken off. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. See, this is a picture of our salvation. So many times we, I hear people give their testimony. And it almost grieves my heart. And I'm sure they mean well. But all you hear is I, I, I. Then I came to Christ. Then I believed the gospel. Then I did this. Then I did that. Beloved, we would do none of that if it wasn't for the grace of God. If it wasn't for God putting his love in our heart, even before the foundation of the world, setting us apart, saving us, We would never come to Christ. We would never be able to share in the glories of the gospel. And it's so easy for us as Christians to walk out of these four walls into a lost and dying world that's filled with sin and therefore sinners. And when we run into people like that, we're snooty. Oh, look at those people. Wow. How disgusting is that? I would never. Yes, you would. And you would do worse if it wasn't for the grace of God. And so would I. We need to be reminded of that. We don't support the trunk of the tree. The trunk of the tree, the root supports us. So don't become arrogant in your salvation brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the problem with the the whole modern health, wealth, prosperity gospel. It's all about them. Name it and claim it. I deserve this. I deserve that. My rights. No, you have nothing. Absolutely nothing. You are nobody. And the sooner we understand that, the easier it is to look to that one who is everything to us. He is somebody, the risen Savior. 
and keep him in the proper perspective in our lives, we should. And God is just, you know, I mean, sometimes he is very creative in the way he gets that message across. As Ken said, some of the the men from the church here went down to the shepherds' conference. And Emmanuel and I and and Sam Rajkumar were able to go to the, the missions conference part of this on Monday. And after Monday, driving back to the hotel, I don't know if I text or talked or whatever to my wife. Wow, was it? And honestly, I said, you know what? I think I should just resign now. (laughs) That's how I felt. Because I was so humbled that God would even think would even consider using someone like me in any way, fashion, or form. And it reminded me that, you know what? This is not your show. This is not your church. This is not your ministry. This is God. You're just one of these little branches out there. And it was a reminder to me, don't be arrogant. The root supports you. Verse 19, then you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Well, that's true. Paul's not arguing against that in verse 20. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But look at what he says. But you stand, what? Fast through faith. He doesn't say stand fast in your own strength. He doesn't say stand fast in your own religious works. He says stand fast in faith. Through faith. Why? So you do not become proud. But look at what it says. But what? Fear. Fear. That's something we need a healthy dose of. (laughs) I think in our modern day Christianity is fear. You hear the phrase all the time, well, you know, we don't serve a God who, who is a God to be feared. Yes, we do. If you're going to fear anybody, you better learn how to fear God. That's the problem with the modern day church. They don't fear God. So they can have their little parties on Sunday morning and everybody be entertained and then, you know, dance off to their, their lives every week. He says in verse 21, for if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. In other words, you better be careful. Don't think you're so high and mighty. If God's chosen people, Israel, was set on the sidelines, 
because of their unbelief, because of their unfruitfulness, because they spurned the purpose of God in their lives, don't think that God won't do the same thing to you because he will. Verse 22, note then the kindness and severity of God. See, it's both sides of the same coin. We want to talk all about the love of God and the forgiveness of God and the grace of God. And we talk little about the holiness of God or the judgment of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you. And I love this little phrase, provided you continue in his kindness. In other words, don't think you're all everything just because he grafted you into this, this tree and now you're part of the, the party. Don't think that you're the reason that the party's happening. It's not. You better continue to do what he's instructed you to do. Otherwise, you too will be, he'll sit on the sidelines just with the rest of them. Verse 23, and even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted back in. In other words, in the fourth quarter, when the game's almost over, God's going to blow the whistle and say, okay, squad, come on on the field. And Israel will be grafted back in. They'll be back in the game. For if you were cut off, from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature. In other words, that's not something that happens just naturally. That's a process that somebody has to do on behalf of the tree. The tree just can't do that on its own. You're grafted into a cultivated olive tree. How much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree. In other words, what Paul is trying to get them to say, see is that, yeah, okay, God for a time has set Israel aside. They're not under the, the blessing of God because of their unbelief, because of the rejection of his plan, his purpose. But God used that, their rejection, their unbelief for our salvation as Gentiles. But just because God did that, don't think we're all what this is about either because what he's going to do is he's going to use the salvation of us as Gentiles to, to cause Israel to become jealous of that relationship they once had with God. And the Bible says in the future, they will come back to the savior and they will look upon him whom they pierced and they will be forgiven and they will be grafted back in to that right standing before God. Just in preparation of our communion time together, turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. I mean, what's the point of all this when you stop and think about it? The point is simply this. If you're sitting here today and you're saved by the blood of Christ, you've put your faith, your trust in Christ, you've trusted him, he's transformed you, he's drawn you to himself, it's because of his grace. You have nothing, we have nothing to brag about. We have no reason to pat ourselves on the back 
to talk about how our faith journey ended, you know, victorious because of all of our abilities and intellect. We figured this thing out. The fact is, is that we have done nothing And we all deserve hell. But when you look at Ephesians chapter 2, look at verse 1. And you were dead in trespasses and sin. That's us, folks. In which you once walked. Yeah, you did. Sometimes I meet Christians who are just so pious and so stuck on themselves. I, I wish the Lord somehow would have a little video of their life before they came to Christ. Wow, you did that. Just to kind of humble In, once you once, in, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And look at We're by nature children of wrath. Like everybody else. The rest of mankind. Aren't you thankful for verse 4? Look at what it says. But God. Like God steps into this bad, horrific movie and says, hey, I've had enough. Game over. It's going to be a new scene. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Look at this. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. In other words, we don't have to clean ourselves up before God saves us. He saves us right in our sin. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. It's done. And raised up with him. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? So that in the coming ages. He might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Did God save us just to go to heaven? No. It's for his glory. He wanted to show his riches of his grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That's what we just read back in Romans. It's our inclination to boast in stuff. And what God is saying, don't you dare boast in your own salvation. Because you had nothing to do with it. It's by the mere grace of God, the pure grace of God, that any of us are saved. For we're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, with which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. Remember we talked about that, the temple, they couldn't go in there. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise. 
having no hope without God in the world. Do you understand that without Christ there is no hope? You can't have your best life now without Christ. Impossible. But now, verse 13 in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, look at this picture, have been brought near. How? By our religion? By our morality? By choices we make? Because we're a good father? Because we're a good wife? Because we're a good mother? A good dad? No. You who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached Peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows in a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together in a dwelling place for God by his spirit. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we thank you even for the unbelief of Israel that somehow you took that and you made that part of your purpose, your plan. And Lord, that by your grace, you chose us who were far off, who had nothing to do with the things of God. And yet you chose us even before the foundation of the world. We, we weren't even a twinkle in our mother's eye. You, you set your love upon us somehow. And Father, you drew us close to you through this sacrifice that we're about to celebrate in our communion time, through the sacrifice of Christ, through his body, through his blood. When he went to the cross, he paid for all of the sins of all those individuals who would turn to him for salvation. He paid for every sin. There's not one sin in the life of a believer today sitting here today that has not been met out on the cross. It has not been satisfied by God through Christ. Not one. Even when you sin later this afternoon, you know what? That sin is paid for in full. Next week, three weeks from now, if you are in Christ Jesus, your sins are paid for past, present, future. That is something that we should be joyful for. That we should take that message and be willing to share that with others that they too can share in the glory of this so great salvation that you've you've put upon us.
And so, Father, as we celebrate our communion time together, I pray that our hearts would be pure before you. I pray that we would understand your purpose and your plan for us. As Jew or Gentile in this world is to go out and to be the salt and the light that you've called us to be. Quit playing games with our faith. Quit allowing other priorities in our lives to overshadow the ultimate priority for any Christian should be to, to live in a way that brings glory and honor to you, to fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ, to be taught the word of God, to desire to be with the body of Christ day in and day out if possible. That's what we should desire. I pray that you would make that true. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.